As you are seated this morning, you might notice something different in your pews, and that would be that wherever you're sitting, there should be an ESV pew Bible easily within your reach, no matter where you're sitting. You notice that? That would be because a family here at Truro who wishes to remain anonymous, although I know who they are, uh, gave a generous financial gift so that we could purchase 600 additional pew Bibles for the sanctuary. So, thank you. Praise God. So Hebrews, Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Bible, the Word of God, is living and active. So I'm very happy that now all of these pews are fully spiritually electrified. So wherever you're sitting, one of the pillars of this church has always been the Word of God. So I'm just grateful now that wherever anyone sits in this room, they can put their hands on the Word of God. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to open the Word of God to Philippians chapter 4. We're in chapter 4 today, those verses that Mary just read to us. But before we get there, I'd like for you to open your Bible to Psalm 23. You'll find that on page 458. I am 99% sure. In all the Bibles, it should be on the same page number, page 458. Psalm 23. I'd like for us to read it together out loud if you have it and if you're comfortable doing that. Psalm 23, page 458. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. There's a reason why that psalm is so widely known and loved and printed on bookmarks and refrigerator magnets, it's because it ministers to our deepest need, to my deepest need, to your deepest need, to be loved and cared for and to have a shepherd. That psalm points us forward to Jesus, our shepherd savior who will lead us, who will be with us forever and because of whom we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And Philippians 4, our text today, also points us to our shepherd savior and is also fairly widely known. You may have seen parts of Philippians 4 on bookmarks or on refrigerator magnets. And I think that these nine verses today from Philippians, chapter four, verses one through nine, should comfort us. Just like Psalm 23 comforts us that we are God's people, we belong to him, We are kept and we are guarded by him. Philippians 4 can be found in your pew Bibles on page 982. And we're reminded just in verse 1, verse 1 of chapter 4, how loved we are by our good shepherd. These are Paul's words, of course, when you look at verse 1. It's Paul writing, but his words, remember, are just a reflection, just a reflection of God's heart towards his people as shown to us in Christ. 
verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So we ended last week. It was a good place to end with that light, with that promise, with that with that security of standing firm in the Lord. And so it's a good place to start this week because, as usual, everything rests on that and everything flows from that. You'll see with me as we go through this text today, there's a mixture of exhortation and encouragement. Uh, There's a mixture of challenge here in these verses and there's a mixture of, of comfort. But it all finds its ground and it all finds its source in the gospel. We are loved, we are beloved in Christ, and we stand firm in that. Paul is an under-shepherd of Jesus, the good shepherd, and they are, uh, they, he has two exhortations for us today. So let's start with the exhortations, and then we'll get to an awful lot of encouragement at the end. Two exhortations and an awful lot of encouragement. Start with the exhortations. Verse 2 points us to the first exhortation, which is to turn from Division. Turn from division. And how? How exactly? If you've been tracking with this series, this study of Philippians, the other 11 sermons so far, you'll know the answer. How to turn from division is to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Paul reads us in on a problem in the Philippian church. Uh, That early church had a problem of division between two significant figures in the church. And Paul exhorts or entreats them to turn from division by looking at Jesus. I can only picture these two women sitting there in the Philippian congregation, listening to chapters 1, 2, and 3, and all of a sudden they hear their names out loud, called out by the principal. Verse 2, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And then he goes on uh, to ask someone in Philippi to help and gives us some more background on these two women. Verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, we don't know who he's talking to in particular, he's talking to someone or just at large to the church, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Interesting that there in the early church, two women had a, a central role in the proclamation of the gospel labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So all we know about the issue is that it's an issue of division. Things have deteriorated between two uh, prominent women in the church. And Paul takes it seriously. Division between Christians, we all know this. Division within the church is a serious matter. And it poses a serious risk to the health of the body of Christ. And it's serious enough for the Apostle Paul to be very specific and public in his exhortation here. He names names, which is a shift for him because earlier in the book, when he talked about division, he was very broad. He was very general. You may remember earlier in chapter two, he said this in chapter two, verse two, complete my joy being of the same mind. Remember, that doesn't mean thinking the same way. It just means walking arm in arm in the same direction, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In chapter 2, verse 4, still speaking generally here about unity, he encourages all of us, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So generalities 
at the beginning of the book, and now before he wraps it up and sends it on to Philippi, he gets very specific. He wants everyone in the church to know, including you and me, we can't get away with this. So he gets specific. I'm talking to you, Eodia. There's another good name idea if you're looking for name ideas. I'm talking to you, Syntyche. Someone forwarded me your emails. I know what's going on between you guys. I entreat you to agree. But how? It's interesting. Paul tells them how by agreeing, quote, here's the key again. Here's the key in the Lord. Here's how Paul doesn't say this, okay? Paul doesn't say, I entreat you to just knock it off. I entreat you, let bygones be bygones. I entreat you, think the same way, you two. I entreat you to attend different services so you can avoid one another. Hmm. He didn't say that. Here's what he says. He exhorts them once again, look at the same reference point. Turn your eyes from yourselves again. Lift your eyes to Jesus again. One of the most predictable behaviors of all of us as sheep is that we all go astray. The prophet Isaiah said we turn to our own way. Remember that from the prophet Isaiah? All we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to their own way. It happened in the Philippian church, and it happens at Truro Church. And the only way we turn from division is to turn once again to Jesus and to do it over and over and over and over again. Keep turning to Jesus. So Paul is saying, I entreat you, turn once again to Jesus. Jesus, our shepherd savior, is himself our peace. I love how in a number of Paul's letters, I'm thinking of Ephesians and Colossians, he puts it this way. He refers to Jesus as being our peace, the one who came and made peace. In Colossians, he made peace by the blood of his cross. All the way back, the prophet Isaiah, again, prophesied that Jesus would be the prince of peace. And so, the only way for Christians, then in the church in Philippi or now, the only way for us to turn from division is to turn to something. And it's to Jesus, who is himself our peace. It is a tragic thing when a church is marked by division or disunity because it goes against the very prayer of the Prince of Peace himself. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, in John 17, 21, Jesus prays that they all may be one. They all may be one. I'll never forget uh, leading worship the first Sunday of Advent, December 2006, in my former church. Uh, there was a significant amount of uh, division uh, within the church and within the vestry over how to proceed with the discernment of, towards leaving our former uh, denomination. About 95% of the people felt one way about it. 5% felt another way, both in the congregation and in the vestry. And so on this particular Sunday, uh, different members and representatives of the different camps we're going to be given an opportunity within the worship service to present their perspective and their disagreement and their disappointment with one another. And it was the first Sunday of Advent, and so we sang the Advent carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And when we sang this verse in particular, I think most of us had a lump in our throat. And I've never sung this verse the same way. Again, I always think about that moment. We sang, O Come, Desire of Nations, 
bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad divisions cease and be thyself our king of peace. We are exhorted by God to turn from division by agreeing in the Lord. Jesus alone can take us from the storms of division and to quote Psalm 23, lead us beside still waters because he is himself our peace. That's how we turn from division. Now as we look at verses four through six, we're challenged to turn from anxiety by rejoicing in the Lord and by praying a lot too. So verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now that is quite an exhortation. (laughs) To not be anxious about anything. Is Paul serious here? (laughs) Could he possibly be serious? Is God serious here? How in the world... Can he expect us to read something like this and just say, okay, that's totally doable. That thought had never occurred to me. Thanks, Paul. I should just stop being anxious. Why didn't anyone tell me this sooner? It's that easy. Just don't be anxious. Okay. Is he serious? Is he serious? Yes, he is serious, and God is too. Because just like division is a toxic poison in the church. Anxiety is like a toxic poison in our hearts. And Jesus alone is saying, I am the antidote. Jesus alone can say yes, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear any evil because I am with you. And Jesus says, guess what, my dear child? I am not anxious. There's an old hymn, many of you know my, uh, may know it by heart, that gets this whole anxiety thing kind of wrong, I think. And the old hymn goes like this. You might know it. <clears throat> Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. What's the next part? Be happy. Yeah, you, it's not in our hymnals, I don't think. It got left out. <laughs> In every life, we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry. Be happy. Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry. Be happy. This next part gets me. The landlord says your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry. Be happy. Now, fun song. It doesn't tell us how to do that. It tells us what to do. It doesn't tell us how to do it. Philippians 4 tells us how to do it. And it's to do the same thing with our anxieties that we do with our sins. It's to do the same thing with our anxieties that we do with our whole selves. And that is to run to Jesus. Paul is not saying bury your head in the sand. He's saying bury yourself once again in the rock of Christ. That's what he's saying here. He's not just saying, wish it all away. He's not giving a quick fix here. He's pointing us once again to Jesus. The secret here is that Jesus never has any anxiety. We always have anxiety. 
That's a reality of life. It chases us every moment of our day. It chases us all the way to when we put our heads on our pillow. And it even chases us in our sleep. And in that first moment we wake up, when something wakes us up at three in the morning, and it's in our minds, and we can't go back to sleep, it chases us. And I'm not going to pretend, standing up here, we can just wish it all away, or that the Bible is giving us some quick fix here to just say a prayer, do a thing, and our anxiety dissipates. It's not a quick fix. It's an invitation, once again, to hide ourselves in the rock of Christ. To end that moment at three in the morning, when you can feel your body start to to tense up again, if that thought comes back to you, that problem comes back to you, that bill comes back to you, the diagnosis comes back to you, that wayward child comes into your mind, and your heart starts beating faster, and you can't go back to sleep. It's not a quick fix. It's an invitation, once again, to, to picture in your mind Jesus. Say, Jesus, Jesus, I know you're not anxious about this. I know you hold all things together. Help me in this. Help me. Help me, help me. It's an invitation back to Jesus, to the one who never moves, to the one who is never anxious. I love how the old hymn puts it, that in every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds where? Within the veil. That my anchor, somehow I'm standing on this side of the veil, but somehow my anchor is on the other side of the veil in Christ. That as I walk through this earth, through this world, through my life, I deal with problems and surprises and trauma and tragedy and crisis and sickness, that actually my anchor holds within the veil. And it's not just in a physical location or in a, um, a philosophical location. My spiritual anchor actually holds in the person of Christ. My anchor holds within the veil, Christ alone. What's he? Cornerstone. Turning from anxiety, not a quick fix. It's an invitation to turn to our non-anxious Jesus. And one of the things that we will find ourselves doing naturally as a result of a relationship with a person is communication with that person. And that's the call to prayer here. The call to prayer. Prayer is just an invitation to uh, to communication with Jesus. Like I would communicate with a person next to me. In my own way, uh, that person knows me, I know them. It might just be a grunt once in a while. Uh, but they know my grunt. They know what that grunt means. It's communication with, with Jesus. What happens as we do this, what's, what Paul is describing in a sense is that as we do this, God throws open the windows of our heart, and that toxic poison then has a place to go. Because otherwise, we just live in a closed room of our own thoughts and our own anxieties and our own fears and worries. And what Paul is saying is, let your requests be made known to God. Pray without ceasing. Throw open those windows of your heart. Let that toxic poison of anxiety out. It was a year ago today. I don't know why I know this, but I can tend to be pretty good with anniversaries, I think. Uh, I think. Um, a year ago today that I formally submitted my application for this role to the search committee. And let me tell you, the months before then and the months after then, I was quite tempted to anxiety. 
Mike is laughing. <laughs> what if I don't get the job? What if I do get the job? I'm pretty sure God is calling me to this role. What if I'm wrong? What if? What if that? What if this? What if this doesn't happen? What if this does happen? What if I'm putting myself and my family in a position to be hurt? Oh my goodness, what am I doing? Three in the morning. And a little voice in the back of my head would say things like, Jamie, you're crazy. Or, Jamie, you're out of your mind. And I'd say back, Mike, see, right? Tell me something I don't already know. <clears throat> but serious, seriously, I was daily tempted to anxiety and worry. And my first Sunday back here, after the process had finished up and an announcement had been made, uh, our opening hymn that day, which we had chosen weeks or months in advance, was praise to the Lord the Almighty. And processed down the aisle, I get here to my seat, I turn around, and the first phrase that's on the wall that we're singing at that very moment is this. Hast thou not seen how all thy longings have been granted in what he ordaineth? That was for me in that moment. God was saying, Jamie, have you not seen how all your longings have been granted? Why are you anxious? I think of Jesus in Matthew 6. Why do you worry? Who of you by worrying can add a single moment to your life? The Lord is at hand, Paul says. Do not be anxious about anything. This is Paul's second exhortation here to turn from anxiety by rejoicing in the Lord and praying a lot. But as I said earlier, these exhortations are surrounded by a ton of encouragement. We started there in verse 1 and we finished there looking at verse 7. Paul says this, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice how the peace of God is supernatural. It doesn't make any sense. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It surpasses understanding. It defies logic. And notice also how Paul describes peace as it guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. He's using imagery here of a military garrison of troops stationed around us. The deeper and more fully we live in Christ, the more we strain towards him, the more his supernatural peace keeps us and guards us. David wrote in Psalm 23, six, goodness and mercy would follow him all the days of his life. When I walk into this meeting, his goodness and his mercy Following me. We sang this song yesterday at the bishop's consecration. Your goodness is running after. It's running after me. It's a goodness that pursues us. It's a peace that's stationed around us in that meeting, in that hospital room, in that phone call, in that office appointment. He's pursuing you with his peace that keeps you and guards you. I love how uh, Sinclair Ferguson puts it in his commentary on Philippians. He says this, God himself is the God of peace. Read that in verse 9. He's the God of peace. God himself is the God of peace. Peace is the atmosphere of heaven. You are in a world full of trouble and anxiety, far from the heavenly city of which you are a citizen. But God sends a garrison of peace to guard you while you are away from your homeland. I love that. We are citizens of heaven, and the atmosphere of heaven is peace. And even while we walk on this earth, God sends peace from heaven to guard us. It's the real thing 
It's the real peace. I remember going to the Air and Space Museum as a kid downtown, seeing a little piece of moon rock. These crowds would all gather around and line up to see a real piece of rock from the real moon. Uh, I've taken my kids to the Udvar-Hazy to see the space shuttle. The real space shuttle that I would see lift off when I was a kid from my backyard. It's the real thing. Paul is saying the peace that passes understanding is going to guard your heart and keep your heart and your mind in Jesus is the real peace of real God. The peace that fills you is not just a passivity. It's not just a removal from life. It's not just a state of of floating above things. It's not an emptying of yourself. Christian peace, gospel peace, is not an emptying of yourself. That's worldly peace. That's religious peace. That's new age peace. Christian peace, gospel peace, is the filling of ourselves with the spirit of the Prince of Peace. And it even happens in our minds that, again, we're not emptying our minds of thoughts. That's not possible. We're doing this. Paul describes it this way in another letter, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God by this, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. That thought comes into our mind. That anxiety comes into our mind. That fear, that discouragement, that shame, we feel it, we experience it, it wakes us up, it keeps us awake, our heart rate picks up. We recognize it for what it is. We say, hello, thought. Hello, anxiety. Hello, fear. I see you. I know what you're saying to me. Obey Christ. (laughs) Obey Christ. That's what Paul describes here in verse 8. He's telling us, you can tell your thoughts to obey Christ. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Obey Christ. I want to be a part of a church. I want to be a person who, when a thought comes into my mind, when a thought comes into a meeting, the first thought out of that, after that thought, is, is this obeying Christ? Am I obeying Christ here? This is how a Christian and a church can turn from division, whether it was Iodia or Syntyche, or you, or me, and this is how we can turn from anxiety. This is it, by standing firm in the Lord, agreeing in him, rejoicing in him, burying ourselves in him, again, straining after him, talking with him, taking every thought captive to obey him. And what's really encouraging here, the very last verse is a reminder to us that we will get better at this. We can be encouraged As a church, we'll get better at this as we keep our eyes on the prize of Jesus. And we don't need to be discouraged when old habits come up, either in our own hearts, in our own lives, or in the church. Old habits, old dead patterns come back. We don't need to be discouraged. We will get better at this as we fix our eyes on Jesus. How exactly? By practicing. Verse 9, practice these things. I love that. Practice these things. Because praise God, there's a promise. Again, after that, practice these things because, why? The God of peace will be with you. 
The Lord really is our shepherd, isn't he? We are in very good hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, Christ in us. Lord, help us to turn from these things in our hearts or in our church from anxiety or from division. Help us to turn once again to you, Jesus. Draw us to you that our anchor would hold within the veil. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.